how would you describe the Bible? First question off. Anyone want to give a go? I know this is kind of embarrassing, but I'm going to, I do this all the time with the kids. How would you describe the Bible? How about like one word, one or two word phrases? Just yell it out. Truth. Amazing. amazing. Yeah. All right. We got this. What else? God's word. Living. Yeah. Alive. I like that actually. Cause I, you know, I like science fiction and anime and all that. It's like, it's a living sword. Like we look at that. I'm like, I carry it with me. It's dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> it is actually. It's true though. This stuff is true. Anything else? Anything else? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, his love letter. Totally. We read a story in Judges last week. It doesn't fit that mold. But you get it in there. He's in the middle of it. That's Ben's fault, by the way, for all those. <laughs> Ben Kreishner chose the book of Judges for us to read, which there's some crazy stuff in that yes, book. Anything else? Really Anything else? <laughs> Anything else? Frank? Hope, yeah, absolutely. Hey, like we have, uh, we have all kinds of Bibles. So I have like, I like this one. This one's got four versions of the Bible in it on every page, right? It's got, it's, it's parallel. It's got NIV, NASB, King James, New Living Translation. These are a couple of my favorite Bibles. Uh, I love this one. It's absolutely phenomenal. If you have kids, it's the Jesus Storybook Bible. We're reading this right now for family devotions again. Beautiful story. Kind of a paraphrase, but it's cool. It's got pictures. I told you this is how I learned the gospel. Bam! Yeah. We have like comic strip stuff going on. Uh, we got like Bibles. Like this one is one of my favorite. This is a New Testament one. And uh, it's got the Greek, it's got Greek in it as well as like all of the Strong's numbers. You got like like Greek interpretation words in the back and everything with numbers all over it. We got study Bibles. And then this one's one of my favorites because I had one of these growing up. You guys have one like this at home anywhere? You know, like, like I used to sneak this one out just so I could look at the pictures because, you know, there's like some kind of scary pictures in there like with, where David like slew Goliath and cut his head off and stuff. I didn't really care about it. And then there was a section in this one too. It was like weird stories in the Bible. So I never, like I, I wasn't really interested in reading the gospel. I just wanted to go to the section where it said weird stories in the Bible. And this one actually, I pulled this one out of my bookshelf and uh, I noticed that I in this one too, this is so funny. I didn't even realize this. Reg didn't even realize this, but I, there was money in this Bible. <laughs> I was like, really? There's money? And I had to look at it, and it was like, holy cow, this is my very first dollar. Came from my grandma and grandpa Carrie, so like five days after I was born. Where do we put that? In our Bible, right? That's where we put it. we got to put it in our family. This one's got like places for you to like put your uh, hit, like your family uh, generations from generations, and so you keep it in there, you know. And we call it holy, so um, the holy Bible. So that's what we're talking about. So in the in uh, the book of Psalms, it says that the word of God is perfect, trustworthy, right, clear, pure, and true. In our first lesson, that was two weeks ago, we actually looked at several different things about the Bible: that it was inspired, that it's timeless that it has absolute truth in it, and that it has the ability to do some phenomenal things with the heart of human beings, that it exposes motives and other things. Today we're going to consider a little bit more about the scripture and what the Bible actually has to say about itself. So 
uh, Bible students actually use different words. And we have this too sometimes in statement of faith about what we believe. I mean, when we have all these sorts of Bibles, I mean, the Bible is the number one selling book in all history. By the way, you know what? It also, not only is it the number one uh, selling book in all history, I found out yesterday through the internet, and you know everything on the internet is true, right. that it's the number one, the, the, no, it's, not, it's not inspired, unfortunately, but uh, it's the number one stolen book, too. Would you believe that? It's the number one stolen book in all history. And that's because of people like us, we're like leaving it in rooms and stuff, like in hotels, so people just take it. Of course, I don't really see that stolen. I'm like, that's from the Lord, that's just us, like, plant, that's, just, that's just the church planting seeds everywhere. But, uh, Today we want to consider what the Bible is actually saying about itself. And we're going to summarize some things out of 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. Uh, three words that we're going to be covering today. Inerrancy, infallibility, and verbal plenary inspiration. So what we do is we combine some thoughts and we put some things into a statement of faith. We try and summarize what is it that we believe about this book that makes it so special and the book itself says some things and there's some things that we believe about god and the character of god and in titus it says that god cannot lie and so when we put these things together and we know that it is impossible for god to lie and with teaching about the revelation of the bible that we actually get from the scriptures we derive then a belief about the inerrancy of Scripture. So 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, that all, and we covered this two weeks ago, that all Scripture is inspired. All, not just part. And we believe that the whole thing is. Uh, the great parts that we glom onto and that we love, as well as the parts that are more difficult. We believe that God breathed those and that it is fully inspired in all respects. And it's inspired by God. That's the second part of the verse. All scripture is inspired by God, that it, is in, that it is divine. And because God does not lie, that the scriptures themselves contain truth for us. And that it is profitable. And then we get a list from uh, the writer of Second Timothy about what we can use this book for. Hopefully it's not just in a box somewhere. Uh, that you have some versions. I was reading some poetry about the Bible yesterday, and one of the writers was talking about how certain pages had tears that were left over it, other parts where they laughed, both tears of sorrow, tears of joy, and that it's a worn-out book. Um, I told you about the pastor that I had one time, had rubber bands all over his book, so, or all over his Bible, and uh, mine's actually, got, I asked Reg to cover it because it was falling apart with, like, brown, remember we used to cover books with, like, brown Brown, uh, you can't even get these. You have to ask for them when you go to Walmart or whatever now or to a grocery store. Cover them with brown paper thing. And he, he ripped his rubber bands off and he's like, my Bible, you know, might be falling apart. But when, if you see someone who's got a Bible who's falling apart, his life or her life probably is not. And I was like, whoa, that's intense truth right there. Got to spend time in the word. So it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness so that the follower of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. So what we're going to do is I'm going to ask Pastor Paul some questions, and then we're going to go over these truths. So number one, hey, what does inerrancy mean? What are we talking about? Well, that's a, that's a good question, even if I wrote it. But, um, <laughs> but uh, today, there's a lot of discussion and debate about the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, and believe it or not, a lot of people are beginning to doubt the inerrancy of Scripture yeah. 
or they're actually twisting the word to mean something other than what it actually means. So I want to look at two things this morning. First of all, theologically, the Bible is without error from start to finish. That means no mistakes, no errors. Uh, It's not misleading in any of the information that it gives us. Interestingly, Webster's defines inerrancy. I I wish some of these um, graduates that come before us for interviews uh, had just read Webster's. Because Webster says it means without error. Inerrancy means without error, without deviation from truth or accuracy. So when we say the Bible is inerrant, we mean there are no errors in it. There are no mistakes. It never deviates from the truth. Therefore, it is completely reliable. So, so then the next question, because we're going we're gonna, to um, continue this. Does inerrancy apply to everything? Or is it just spiritual truths? Because there's spiritual truths in the scriptures, and then there's other things in there too. So does it apply to just the spiritual um, parts of the text or all parts of the text? A lot of people today think that the Bible, particularly, I'm going to call them neo-evangelicals, the new evangelicals, uh, they're not really evangelical in the traditional sense because they're changing. The very foundations are beginning to move. But they will say that the Bible is 100% accurate when it talks about salvation. In other words, the salvation history of Scripture is true from cover to cover. Anything about heaven, anything about eternal life, anything about Jesus uh, being the Son of God, anything about the Holy Spirit, anything like that, we can rely on the Bible to be 100% accurate. But we cannot rely on the Bible to be accurate with matters of history or science or creation or any uh, of the uh, narratives necessarily, because um, the people that wrote the text were kind of influenced by the spirit of their age. I had one person who was a uh, candidate for um, ordination. Uh, We uh, turned him down, incidentally. But he was a candidate for ordination, and he said that... um, the Bible was not intended to be understood with literally an accuracy regarding the history. That Moses, for example, although he didn't believe Moses wrote the first five books, whoever the author was, was influenced by the thinking of his age. And so he wrote what was culturally normative for the time in which he lived. And that's one of the reasons why you can go to different tribes and different uh, locations around the world 
and you look back in their history and they have similar stories. There are a lot of uh, tribes and religions that have flood stories and they have uh, other sorts of things that you can find in the Bible. And, and the, the idea is, well, that was the prevailing thinking. I don't know why no one ever thinks that maybe it was the truth. And that's why they all have a history of it. You know, every one of them has a history of a flood in their antiquity because there was a flood. It wasn't just the thinking of the age. It's important to to realize that the Bible is inerrant with reference to creation and history and scientific information. And the reason that that's so important is these are things that we can, at least to an extent, investigate. How can we believe that God is telling us the truth about things we can't see if we believe that what we can see or have derived through study is not true in the scriptures, that the Bible is mistaken about those things. There's a popular idea today that macroevolution occurred and eventually wound up in the Homo sapien line of a tribe of unusually uh, dexterous and intelligent Homo sapiens. They were like uh, superior, <laughs> kind of like the Planet of the Apes, you know, they were, they were superior monkeys, and uh, not really monkeys, but they had come to this uh, high level of functioning, and there was a clan of about 10,000 of them, and God just picked the leader out of the group and named him Adam, and he's the one that really began the transition into what we know as the human race. And his um, leadership was recognized in, in what the Genesis story tells about Adam and Eve and the fall of man, which, by the way, is an allegory. It's a story that helps us understand the the rebellion that this leader made when he turned away from God. Well, you can see where all this stuff is leading it, and there are Christians who believe this, that have advanced degrees, they have studied it intently, and they're committed to this idea that the Bible's inerrancy only applies to spiritual truth It has nothing to do with history or creation or anything like that. But friends, if we cannot trust what the Bible says in Genesis and in Exodus and so on throughout the whole history of salvation, if we can't trust what can be potentially investigated then we cannot reliably trust what we cannot see. And therefore, we have no more certainty of our faith than anyone else on the planet has in theirs. We're just guessing and hoping 
that things will turn out okay. So I met a I met a um, a pastor actually. Believe it or not, I had wrote a letter to my sister who was being baptized, and I quoted some stuff from Colossians and Romans, things that we talked about last week actually. And uh, the pastor actually said to my sister when they read the letter at her baptism, she said, hey, well, only the words that are in red in the Bible are actually trustworthy. So the rest is to be encouraged. And it makes me wonder what kind of impact that has, because it's kind of like what you're talking about is that, well, I'll just, like this part here, I'll just take that part out, or you can't trust this part. And how does that... It has an impact, I think, on, on hope and life and light and our understanding of the Lord. If, we, if some parts are reliable but our others are not, what kind of impacts would, do you think that would have? Huge, right? You know, I'm sure somebody will correct me at the back door if I'm wrong here. Um, it never fails. Uh, I think it was Benjamin Franklin, but I could be wrong. And I'm giving this disclaimer. I could be wrong who tore every page out of his Bible that he did not believe. Thomas Jefferson. I knew. I didn't even wait for the back door. (laughs) That's why we're a community. Every page out that they didn't believe. When they came to the end of their life, there were about 87 pages left in their Bible. They'd torn all the rest of it out. That's kind of like, the red letter edition, yeah, you know, it, it, it leaves such a minuscule part. Um, and then the rest of it, you're just on your own. Figure it out. So let's talk about infallibility. What, what actually is infallibility? When we talk about that with the scriptures as a foundation for our understanding of God and the world and ourselves. Well, you know... Inerrancy and infallibility are very closely aligned, connected. They're like cousins. Um, they're really close in their meaning. But there's a slight nuance of difference. Infallible actually means not capable of misleading or not capable of error. And so... When we talk about the Bible being infallible, we mean that when it tells us anything, it cannot be wrong. It is absolutely trustworthy in everything that it says. And it can't be wrong because God, who cannot lie, inspired it. So, is this, I'm going to ask another question. So the arena around, at one time Jesus was actually questioned, and he actually referenced to the, the spiritual leaders at the time where he actually said, if you believe the scriptures and the scriptures cannot be broken, is that similar to what the infallibility is? I believe it is. The, the scriptures cannot be in any way taken apart. They're a seamless whole. And he went on, I think, in that context to say, and these scriptures testify of me. Correct. They speak of me. I am the one that they describe. 
And uh, when you look at Scripture uh, from Genesis to Revelation, the main character is Jesus. Even in the 39 books of the Old Testament, Jesus is still the main character. It's all about him. And he also said in Matthew 5.18, not one jot or tittle, not one little piece of a letter can pass away until everything has been fulfilled. So we looked at that from Isaiah uh, several weeks ago when we looked at the verse that says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides or remains forever. So that's interesting because even the texts that we begin to question, when we question its infallibility, attest to, at least historically, the individuals that lived with Jesus, walked with Jesus, saw his miracles, heard his teachings, recorded in part what he believed as a Jewish rabbi about the Old Testament text that we have, about their unbreakableness. And yet, today, even among followers, it seems like we're questioning even that belief about the text in certain ways. makes me wonder why we do that. I'm just, I have some ideas yeah, yeah. in my own heart about why we do that. But, hey, what about, let's talk about verbal plenary inspiration. That's actually, like, it's fun. I, I kind of, when I work for the government, and I want to make an acronym out of it, what would that be? VPI. It would be, let's talk about VPI for a minute. Verbal plenary inspiration. A lot of really big words there. And uh, although it's probably foundational to, to what I believe, makes me wonder if someone came up to me on the street and said, hey, explain to me verbal plenary inspiration, if I would be able to quote it as quickly as I could the gospel. But what do you, what do you say about it? <laughs> good, good question. Verbal. Verbal. What does verbal mean? When you're verbal, what are you doing? You're talking, aren't you? <laughs> you're, you're giving out words. Verbal refers to the words. And this is one of the reasons why we can teach the Bible and preach the Bible expositionally. Because we can take the very words of Scripture and dissect them, as it were, uh, take them apart, dig into them, look at the sentence in which they occur, and come to an understanding of truth by looking at the very words of Scripture. First uh, uh, Peter is it? First Peter or Second Peter? Second Peter one twenty one says that men spoke as they were moved by the Spirit of God. And do you notice the word spoke there? As they wrote the Scriptures, they, they spoke those words onto the page as they were moved by the Spirit of God. So the very words of Scripture are the words of God. God did not just inspire the concepts and then the writers put them in their own terms. But God actually inspired the very words. Now, I want to make one thing clear, because this is, this is kind of important here. We're not talking about dictation. We're actually talking about a miracle 
of inspiration. And inspiration, as we've said many times now, means God breathed. And so depending on who the writer was, for example, the vocabulary and the sentence structure of the Apostle John is very different from the writer of the letter of Hebrews. And Peter writes differently than Mark does. And so when you begin to look at the the way the sentences are composed and the vocabularies that are used, you find some differences. And you say, well, how could God have directed the very words of Scripture if the authors come at it from a different viewpoint or a different perspective? And what we're saying is that God did not dictate to them words, but He interposed into their mind and in their heart using their personality and their vocabulary the miracle of inspiration so that what they wrote were the very words of God. And it's interesting to me how when you read the Scriptures you find that the same, I'm going to use the word concepts now in in a good way, you find the same concepts being repeated over and over again. Because God is underscoring truth. And just just like we have, when we meet as pastors and we talk about it uh, in this community, you know, we uh, there's Assembly of God, there's Evangelical Free, uh, there's uh, Presbyterian, there is Christian Missionary Alliance, there's Independent Bible. And we say, why do we have all these churches? You know, we all believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We believe He died for us. Why do we have all these different churches? Why don't we just all get together? Friends, every church has a personality. It has a culture. It's unique. And this church will appeal to some people that the assembly church would never attract. And the evangelical free church will appeal to some people that faith Presbyterian will never attract. In other words... The, the differences in the churches, in their personality, not in their fundamental beliefs, but in their personality, opens a broader door to people to find Christ and begin to grow in community. And for that reason, we celebrate and rejoice with one another when, when growth occurs Amen. in anyone's body, because it's exciting. The family of God is growing, but it's a little different from place to place. Now, when we come to the scriptures and the very words of God, God gives us different authors to write the same thing using their personality and their vocabulary because Neri's going to understand it in James and Laurie's going to get it better from Matthew. And God puts it all in there so that it just keeps 
landing on us, so to speak. And, and as you study more and more, you, you get to where, um, you know, you, you see this pattern developing. Um, and, and I can go all the way back to, to Genesis and talk to you about the covenants of God or the filling of the Holy Spirit. And it occurs all throughout the Old Testament. So verbal is the very words of Scripture, and we can rely on those words. That, that's why we have things uh, like in this, the word, complete word study New Testament, and uh, they give us the Greek interlinear, and then they have a dictionary in the back with all the Greek words, is because the words are important. It's not just the concepts, it's the very words that are important. Then we talk about plenary. How many of you have been to a conference and uh, several of the sessions were called plenary sessions? Let me see your hand. You've been to a plenary session. Do you ever wonder what that meant? That means everybody's together. You're all in the same room hearing the same speaker. Plenary means it's all the whole thing is gathered together. In the scripture, plenary means from Genesis to Revelation. All 66 books belong together as a seamless whole. That refers to the canon of scripture. And by the way, our Old Testament canon, 39 books in the Old Testament, is the same canon that Jesus referred to in Matthew 5.18, when he said, not one little stroke of a letter will pass away until everything has been fulfilled. And so, we talk about, first of all, the whole Bible, but we also talk about all of the teaching of the Bible. It, it, and all of the history of the Bible, and anything that relates to science. The, the Bible is not a science textbook, but whenever it touches on science, it's accurate. All of the Bible, both the 66 books and the topics and issues covered, are without error. And finally, inspiration means that God breathed it. Uh, if you can imagine him sitting with the author and breathing out from his very being the words of Scripture as the author wrote them down, we have what we call verbal plenary inspiration. It covers everything, all the words, all 66 books, by divine inspiration. And this is what we believe. Well, it's what I believe. I hope it's what you believe. Because it's so very important to have an anchor for my soul. <laughs> it's very important for me... To, you know, we, if you look at the doctrines, uh, if you look at systematic theology and you look at the doctrine, doctrine of God, doctrine of Christ, doctrine of salvation, doctrine of sin, you go on like that, you, you get to the doctrine of the Bible. I really think that the doctrine of the Bible belongs at the top. And I'll tell you why. It's not that it's more important. It's not that the book is more important than Jesus. The book is just print on paper. 
But the words that are in that book are what tell me about God. They tell me about Jesus. They tell me about the Holy Spirit. They tell me about sin. They tell me about salvation. The words in the Bible give me all the information that I need uh, through Jesus Christ for life and godliness. So if, if you ask me, the Bible is the starting point. We have to have that anchor. We have to have uh, that bedrock to which we go in order to discern all the rest of the meaning. Now, I'm going to mention this, and Carrie's going to mention it again at the, at the very end of the message, but in, on the back table, there are some cards that look like this. They say, Discerning Truth in a Post-Christian Culture. Question for Biblical Consideration. And then it starts out your question. What does the Bible say about... And this is your chance. This is the big one. Starting next week, we're going to take the scriptures and take your questions and begin to demonstrate how to search the scriptures for the answers to your questions. And I want to tell you right up front, there is nothing that is off limits. There's nothing that is off limits. You can ask anything and write it on this and you can put it in that box by the door. And there will be some more of these out every week because for the next uh, four or five weeks we're going to be talking about how to use the Bible to answer the tough questions of life. And I don't want to just give you answers. I want you to see how Carrie and I can take the scriptures and search them out and demonstrate for you how you can begin to use the scriptures to find the answers to your questions. Because if you can't do that, you may as well not have a Bible. You'll be just as lost as if it weren't there. But if you learn how to use the scriptures in order to seek the truth, and the Holy Spirit, our teacher, will guide you, and you learn how to interpret it, you will be able to take any question that comes up in your mind and seek God for the answers. Now, am I naive enough to believe that we're going to answer every question that you ask? No. <laughs> Sometimes they're pretty tough. Sometimes you have to wait a while and pray over it and study and, and check it out. But other times it's just a matter of very easily going to the scripture and beginning to put A with B and B with C and C with D and coming out with the teaching. Why do we say the Bible is without error? Because it was inspired by God. A different verse says, God cannot lie. So, 
you put those two verses together and you have a clear teaching that God, who cannot lie, has inspired the Scriptures. And therefore, we can trust them. Well, anything you want to ask, I won't shy away from anything. So, now's your chance. Like I said, this is the big one. Now's your chance. You can ask anything you want to ask. Carrie, why don't you wrap up for us? Hey, I had a... I know this could be a whole nother message, but I thought maybe just one more question. It's not on the sheet, but I get this one quite regularly. So I have a whole bunch of different Bibles up here. Comments for Bible, Kids Bible, uh, New King James, King James Version, New American Standard. Verbally plenary inspired? Eh, I'm a little concerned about the comic strip Bible, Perry. <laughs> <laughs> Are our, I guess that, the question that's, is... That's the Peter Pan version. It is, actually. Are our, are our English versions accurate? I mean, are they trustworthy? That's a, great, that's a great question. And I'm glad you asked it because I wanted to answer it earlier and I forgot. Um, there is something called the autographs. You know what an autograph is? It's when a movie star signs their picture, right? <laughs> In their own hand. No. The autographs of Scripture are the very books that the authors penned. Paul's letters, the very one Paul wrote. See with what big letters I am writing. (laughs) Because that was characteristic of his handwriting. So we apply absolute inerrancy only to the autographs. You say, why would you do that? Well, because they were hand-copied over hundreds of years. And try as they might, scribes sometimes made mistakes. They didn't mean to, but they did. And you have to keep going back in, um, that was a bit southern, weren't it? Going, y'all going back? Mm -hmm. If you're from the South, I don't mean to offend you. That's where I grew up. (laughs) But we have to keep going back in archaeology to keep finding older and older and older manuscripts. And so the translations that we have today, we cannot say are word for word inerrant. But, I want to say this, if you were to combine all the texts that have a question mark over them and put them together, the the minuscule amount that it would pertain to is probably less than 1%. And it would and none of them in any way affect the major doctrines of Scripture. That's amazing. You know, I, I may once in a while take a verse and say, now the Greek says this, and, and we really ought to understand that. And what I'm trying to say is, if we go back to the Greek, 
we can get a little better translation than what we have in our English Bibles because let's face it, folks, and I don't care who who the team was, translators have a theological bias and it creeps into their translation. The good translations build a team that have differing theological backgrounds so that they keep each other honest. And that works quite well, but it's still not perfect. And so if you have an NIV or an NASB, you probably have the best translation you can put your hands on. If you have a translation that's written by one person, you are more likely to have theological bias creep in. In those verses where it's like, eh, how should we go here? How should we translate this? They're going to favor their theological posture. But understand this, that the Bible is so accurate and so good that the percentage of difference is minuscule. In fact, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered and the book of Isaiah was uncovered in the Dead Sea find, the oldest Hebrew manuscript that we had reliably since then was about 900 uh, A.D., the Masoretic text. And here's what's interesting about that. <laughs> Those Hebrew scribes, bless their heart, once they copied the scriptures over because the scroll was worn out, they burned it. Uh -huh. Oh, no. They burned it so because they did not want it to get corrupted by getting holes in it and stuff and misleading people. So, so we have 900 years between the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Masoretic Text, and... What do you think the difference is in Isaiah? It's virtually identical. That's awesome. It's virtually identical. In fact, one of my professors told the story one day that the scribes, the Hebrew scribes, in Jesus' day used to play a game. They would take a sharpened fishbone like a needle, and in a rolled-up scroll they would press the needle into it. And then they would pass it around, and the challenge was, guess by looking at the depth and the position, guess what the last letter it indents is. And they nobody plays games that you can't win. They played the game because they knew the text that well. And if they made three mistakes which they corrected... After they made three, if they made another one, they had to burn the parchment and start over. They were only permitted three corrected errors. So, are our Bibles reliable? Yes, they're reliable. Were the autographs completely without error? Yes, they were. And our Bibles today are so close 
that nothing you read will mislead you from the the truth that God wants to communicate. That's just crazy because I remember in kindergarten we used to play that telephone game, you know, where you, where you like sit in a circle and then the teacher says something and then you have to whisper it, you know, like, and you and you pass it around the circle and then it's fun to find out what in the end, you know, this is what was said and uh, this is what in the end actually comes out and they're not even really close. The fact that that happens with the with the scriptural text is a miracle in and of itself. So. Um, the Bible, inerrant, infallible, verbally, plenary, inspired. In summary, God is so passionate about his relationship with us, with humanity, that he has personally, we believe, and miraculously provided the inspiration of his word. He supervised its transmission into a written medium and repeatedly reinforce its reliability so that those who have their eyes open and their hearts open may believe in it with assurance, conviction, passion, and with a trust-filled, hope-filled heart. Nations have rejected these letters. Tyrants have tried to destroy them and put them out because they are an affront to some forms of leadership. Heretics have tried to distort the truth, and yet the word of God continues to remain in its state. It's not good to fight against something that in and of itself says that the world and the heavens and the earth are going to pass away before these words pass away. We have something that's trustworthy. And when you summarize it up, they tell a story. All 66 books that are in here over 1,500 years, 40 different writers, three different languages, and their original texts translated accurately for us. And it says this, that there's a God, a creator, Elohim, who loves humanity and is on a mission to redeem it. He accepts us and you and me unconditionally that he loves us sacrificially, that he understands us intimately, and that he wants to relate with you and me continuously. This is not a dead word. This is a very living and present, uh, not force, but person who has made all things and is reaching out into humanity. Is it not surprising that God has kept it pure? Is it not surprising that it is the number one bestseller? Is it not surprising that we try to destroy it? Because <laughs> there are some days when you open it and you read it, and you like some of it. I know I would like to black out some of it uh, at times. And yet we know that in our heart that the Holy Spirit bears conviction that everything that we've talked about today is true and that he relates with us. So we have these questions, uh, little cards out there in the back. If you don't get a chance to do it, I'm sure you could probably email some questions in. Of course, we won't disclose your questions. You could probably text some questions in if you want to text them in to me. You want to, look, where are you going? Yeah, yeah. So um, however you guys want to do it, we'll do some Q&A. By the way, I do have a book. It's like 101 uh, questions that your Bible teacher never wants you to ask. I'm locking that up so you guys don't get access to that one. 
<laughs> Let's pray, everybody. Lord, we give you thanks for this opportunity once again. Thank you for your love for the world. You know, we want to say thank you for your love for for me personally. And, and truly, like what Neri said, this really is a love letter. And uh, it's a love letter that leads us on a path that ultimately takes us to a cross where we um, have to do business with you because of things that have happened in our heart and in our choices. And yet when we embrace the truths of what you've done for us in Christ and we are buried with him through baptism into death and are raised again and your spirit relates with us and we open up the word, truly it is a love story not just to the world in general, but to us individually. So we ask, open up our eyes, as Paul wrote in Corinthians, that we need spiritual illumination. So come and do that. Help us, And help in community. This is going to be fun, Lord. Help the right questions to be asked and addressed so that your people would be encouraged, that our foundation would be made stronger, and that we would build huge houses of praise that can be there in the sunny and beautiful days and can even weather storms because your word is trustworthy. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.